Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Xavier Amatrian. And Xavier, why don't we get started by... You're at, you're at Quora now. Why don't we have you talk a little bit about what you do there? Sure. So I'm at Quora. I'm the VP of engineering. So I lead the whole engineering organization right now. Uh, my background, though, is more in machine learning. Uh, previously to Quora, I was at Netflix and I was leading the machine learning recommendations team at Netflix. And even before that, I was doing research and I was in academia. And my background, again, is on recommendations, machine learning, and so on. And I've published papers on that uh, space for some years. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that somebody with this kind of background uh, is now the VP of engineering of a, a growing company like Quora, where I, I need to deal with uh, a lot of different concerns, not only machine learning, right? But it also tells you a little bit of story of what is important for Quora as a company, as a product. And that also aligns with, with some of the trends that we're seeing in industry, right? That more and more uh, the machine learning AI people that used to be like closed uh, in a room by a corner and they were like the weirdos in the lab, now they're having a lot more influence on decisions that are being made on how to design products and how to run companies. And uh, uh -huh. in my case, I'm, that's probably like a, a, one of the reasons that I'm uh, in this position now leading the whole engineering organization, because for us, machine learning, it's like, uh, like a big part of our success uh, and how we're growing. All right. So there's there's a ton in there and, and we'd really like to get to know you a little bit better. So let's uh, let's rewind a bit. You mentioned that you spent some time in academia. Yeah, how did you learn machine learning? Where did you go to school and where did you where were you working in academia? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I'm I'm actually kind of old <laughs> for what you see right now uh, <laughs> in, in and I have a long uh, uh, history behind me. And I'm saying that because. Uh, so I, when I did my PhD, which, by the way, I did it back in Spain. I'm originally from Barcelona, Spain. So when I did my PhD, I was mostly interested in signal processing and particularly in signal processing and systems design related to audio and music. Actually, that's what my PhD was based on. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, it was that... Uh, uh, age when multimedia and signal processing was kind of like the hot thing and machine learning was not so much. So I did use some machine learning here and there for different aspects of my research and particularly for some of the initial recommendation systems that I worked on uh, that were related to music, but it wasn't my core area. So I was more into signal processing and systems uh, during my PhD. So I would say that I, I got into machine learning more on the chops and uh, after I left my, you know, my, I did my PhD, I went and did some more multimedia related research in uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB. So I was there, I was working on virtual reality immersive environments. And that was also very cool. It's kind of coming back uh, again now, but uh, I was really interested in that space, combining signal processing and multimedia in this kind of immersive and 
virtual reality environment. Uh, but after that, I became more and more interested on uh, the data side, right? It's like, how do we use the data and how do we infer uh, information from the data? And particularly very interested in how do we understand users from the data, right? So that's what kind of led me to forget a little bit more about the signals that uh, were a little bit like, you know, more, there's, they're also data, but they're like cold data that come from systems and focus mm -hmm. more on the uh, human generated data and try to build uh, intelligent systems that understand. So I, I did, then I, I switched my research and went into uh, working for a few years in recommendations and using machine learning and different kinds of approaches, not only machine learning, but also uh, human computer interaction approaches to build this intelligent sort of like assistance that tell you what you like and what you don't like. So that's what actually led me eventually into Netflix, into leading the, the recommendations team there. Okay. Now you, you dangled a big shiny object in front of my eyes and that is uh signals processing. That was an area that I studied in grad school as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, um, well, A, I'm curious if you could explain wavelets to me, because that was one thing that always gave me a hard time. But actually, no, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you see any parallels. Uh, I'm wondering if there are any interesting things happening at the intersection of signals processing and machine learning, just out of curiosity. do you Have you seen anything? Uh, there's uh, actually a ton of those uh, intersections. There's there's more of like the principles and how they intersect, but I would say probably more interesting now, there is the intersection at the application side of things, right? So if you think about it, um, a lot of the uh, systems that are now being, being uh, that are being built using um, machine learning approaches, uh, particularly deep learning, to understand uh, things like speech recognition or mm -hmm. image recognition. Those were considered in the past like s signal processing uh, applications. And, and for example, uh, although I didn't professionally focus too much in speech recognition, I did study uh, quite a lot of that. Right. And, you know, at that time uh, we were using hidden Markov models and these other techniques that for us in the signal processing world, it wasn't, you know, they were just tools and means to an end. So it wasn't, like right. the most important part of the system, although, you know, it was really like the core of it. Uh, but now that's moved towards uh, some deep learning and RNNs and so on. Uh, so they, there's always been an intersection, right, between machine learning and signal processing. And there's always a lot to say about how to interpret signals, wherever they come from. And those signals, again, could be audio, could be me, um, speech, music, uh, video. Uh, images and you need to build a system that actually uh, either understand those things or even able to generate them in some way. And there's always a, uh, well, not always, but at some point it's clear that that's evolved more into having a layer of intelligence in the middle that it's going to be learned and that comes from a machine learning system that it's sort of like at the heart of any of those systems. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So you, you made your way from academia and ended up at uh, Netflix immediately prior to uh, where you yep. are now at Quora. And your focus there was on recommendation systems? Yeah, uh, I started with a very specific focus on recommendation systems. 
we, um, which you could consider it as a continuation, a natural continuation of the Netflix prize, the famous $1 million uh, Netflix prize, which, by the way, that's what got me connected to Netflix as I was uh, uh, dabbling with it and also part of uh, using that data set for, uh, for some of my research. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so I started with what you could consider like the continuation of that Netflix price, but already working for Netflix. And we eventually grew the team to be more of a core machine learning algorithms team that was building not only recommendations, but algorithms for search and for different things related to images. And it was, uh, it grew to sort of like being a core machine learning slash algorithms team that was serving different purposes uh, beyond recommendations. But recommendations is uh, something that is very important for Netflix, right? So that was really like probably the core of the team at any given time. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of the, you mentioned the next, the Netflix prize, am I correct that the, the winning prize entry was never really implemented at Netflix? <laughs> uh, I'm glad you asked this because I, I, I get this question all the time and uh, I, I react to it by saying it is correct that the final entry <laughs> was not used. <laughs> that doesn't mean that it was useless, right? So sure. there's, uh, I'm saying that because people immediately when I say that, and we wrote it in a blog post when I was in Netflix at some point, uh -huh. and even though it was very clearly explained, people still took away like, oh, Netflix wasted a million dollars and they didn't <laughs> use the outcome. That's not true. Uh, actually, Netflix got way more than $1 million back in research and in interesting stuff that is being used and was used uh, in different parts of different systems. Right. So, uh, so it, there's a difference between was the final entry used and the answer is no, it was not used. Uh, there were uh, over 130 different uh, machine learning models combined in an ensemble. Uh, most of the different models that were there were adding just a tiny increase in accuracy uh, and a lot of complexity and they were not worth it. So the reality is that two of the models on their own gave like, uh, enough uh, accuracy that uh, the other 130 some were not needed uh, or <laughs> th they, it, they were not worth the ROI. That said, it doesn't mean that they were not useful to understand what they were adding and how they were adding it. Um, so again, the, the, the story is the final prize winning entry with a complex combination of all of those methods in an ensemble was not used as it was. But um, the learnings were worth much more than what was invested in the prize. And part of the final winning entry, the most important method, were actually used directly in production. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is, this, I came across this recently in an interesting blog post by Josh Bloom uh, over at Wise. And he talked about the economics of uh, machine learning, basically. Uh, all of the various trade-offs that get, you know, that come up when a uh, real business is trying to figure out how to put machine learning into production. And that was one of the examples uh, he used about how, I forget how many pages or something the, the final algorithm was, but 130 yeah. models, that's a huge, that's a huge model. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. And I know Josh very well, so <laughs> we're friends. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and he knows a lot about, so we've talked about this um, 
uh, in person. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the thing is, that story is so uh, juicy that you can spin it in many different ways. Uh, I actually recently got, uh, this is pretty uh, crazy, but I did get in my Facebook feed an advertisement from uh, MathWorks uh, trying to sell me MATLAB that was using that story and saying something like, Netflix did not use their final winning entry. We can help you with MATLAB. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, what does that have to do with MATLAB, right? So uh, I don't even, I don't get where they're going at all with that. Well, I, I don't know. But, you know, that, that's the, the point is that, uh, yeah, the, the, the real story is, uh, yes, you do need to be concerned. And I, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll always say the same. I mean, you know, you need to be concerned about system complexity and about making sure that whatever you do in research is actually deployable and it's, uh, and it's good to or easy to uh, build engineering around it. Uh, but that's very different from saying that the Netflix prize was a waste of time or money. Sure. So can you maybe spend some time uh, walking, walking through some of the various factors, right? So you mentioned uh, engineering time and there's, you know, so there's obviously like an implementability you know, from a complexity perspective, you know, there are going to be data aspects. Um, mm -hmm. There's computational, obviously, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, practical machine learning and the, the issues that, you know, you're an, you're an engineering uh, yep. VP of engineering now, not a VP of machine learning research or something. When you think about, you know, engineering these systems at large scale, like, what are the things that you need to think about? Oh, there's like a long list of things. And you mentioned a few of them. Uh, system complexity is one which actually spans into uh, different Mm, sub areas and different uh, concerns that relate to the system, to the complexity of the system. One of them, which uh, is often overlooked, is simply cost, right? It's like if you can do something in a single machine, which I have this kind of infamous uh, <laughs> uh, slide that I, when I show people, some people don't like very much, is I, I tell people that they can do probably almost everything they need to do in machine learning in a single machine. Um, and I have reasons to say that. But the, the point is that uh, if you add unnecessary system complexity, first of all, you're going to have a lot more cost. So you're going to have this now uh, huge number of, machi of machines that you're going to have to uh, maintain in a cluster or pay Amazon for AWS cost. Right. Um, so that's one. And it's probably obvious and it's probably not the most important. The most important one is system complexity uh, reduces your uh, speed of innovation. And if you have a system that is really complex from the get-go, innovating on it becomes like a huge pain, right? Because then I'm trying to tweak something and it turns out that that something is just one of the 10,000 knobs that are in the system and it's hard to know what it did. It's hard to understand whether it improved things. And if you keep your system as simple as possible, as long as possible, your innovation is going to improve and your innovation speed because you're going to be in a much better position to then uh, change things dramatically, improve them, understand what you're doing and what is improving. And at some point, you need to add complexity. There's no way around it. It's like complexity might add enough uh, improvement, uh, either in accuracy or basically in whatever metric you care about, that it's worth adding. But the problem is you don't want uh, arbitrary complexity from the start because that 
midterm and long term is going to impact. Uh, you're going to be end up in a local optimal, so to, uh, so to speak, and you're never going to reach that uh, global one that you would be getting if you keep your options simple as much as possible. Interesting. To me, the thing that it brought up was the the notion of technical debt that's typically applied to code, right? Code debt. Is mm-hmm. has anyone have you come across anyone that's uh, thought this through in terms of algorithmic debt? Oh yeah, uh, there's this interesting paper that was published. Actually, originally was published in a workshop that I co-organized in NIPS, uh, and it's called a, a high interest credit card of machine learning debt. <laughs> and uh, it's it's a very good read. Um, it's by a couple of authors from Google, by the way. So they know what they're talking about in terms of machine learning debt. Um, uh, so th- it's something that it's been discussed again, even in papers, right? So, right. so th- it's 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 an uh, something that any organization will face at some point, and it's something that it's really important, and it's really important at many levels, not only at the level of the system itself, but also, and I would go further that that's part of sort of like the the core of the machine learning algorithm, algorithmic design, right? It's like uh, it's Occam's razor principle of, you know, if you have a possibility of choosing between two things, always choose the simplest one. And part of the reason is because you want to minimize your debt as long as possible and only make things more complicated when they really need to be and they're uh, adding up enough. So that goes back to the lesson learned from the Netflix prize is like, you know, yeah, sure, you can have you, you can go for the more complex solution, but is the delta in improvement that is adding worth the huge increase in complexity? And many times the answer is going to be no. Uh, that's an interesting segue to uh, one of the topics that I wanted to chat with you about. You recently tweeted about a, a natural language processing course, and the hashtag you use was no deep learning. And you, across a number of, of your public appearances, you've maybe developed uh, a little reputation for Mr. Hashtag No Deep Learning. And of course, I'm being I'm being uh, artificially, you know, controversial here. Yeah, I, I understand that this is you know it's a it's a tool in the toolbox. Um, but yeah. some of our earlier discussion about system complexity, I think, is one of the yeah. issues that that you have with deep learning. Maybe walk us through. You know what your position, how you think of your position on deep learning, uh, and you know why you bring it up. Interesting. <laughs> when when I talk about deep learning, I always start by having a few slides in my presentation that uh, explain how deep learning works, right? So I want to get that out of the way and say, hey, I know that deep learning works, and the, and it's great for a few things. Actually, particularly for natural language processing, I think that it's getting to a point where it's the default uh, tool for many things, and it's great. So the reason I was using the hashtag is just to warn people that if they were looking for deep learning, it wasn't available in that course. So I think it is, it's very important for uh, people to understand um, what is the right tool for the right task. And uh, for example, we use deep learning at Quora for several things, right? We have a lot of text and going back to the NLP example, there's many things now in text processing that RNNs are, you know, they're actually the simplest solution there is <laughs> because you can you can find uh, some of this uh, 
uh, ready available open source tool, uh, toolkits that have already been trained and you can even use the model as it is. You don't even need to have your own data set uh, or then you can retrain it. But uh, basically it becomes simple enough that that could be your default uh, approach to a, um, an NLP task uh, that you have at hand. But that's very different from saying that that's equally true for all machine learning applications. And you need to understand, like, what is the complexity you're paying for defaulting to machine learning for everything you have? And I've seen a couple of examples recently where I think we're, you know, in a dangerous situation where um, a lot of people, especially like uh, more junior researchers or engineers, that they're, you know, they've come into industry right at the cusp of the deep learning bubble or wave or whatever we want to call it. And their their mind goes straight into deep learning as the default solution for anything. And I've seen cases where I've had um, engineers in uh, some companies tell me, hey, I'm using this uh, TensorFlow architecture on a problem where I have uh, 10,000 examples and 30 features and I want to ask you a question, and my answer, like, why are you doing this to yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, if you have 10,000 examples and 30 features, uh, do you really think you need a deep learning model with uh, a bunch of layers? And most of the time, the answer is no. And even if you, the classifier that you're building with that deep learning um, uh, architecture is let's say in the best case, 1% better than the one you could be building with a simple logistic regression, you're still gonna be better off going for the logistic regression because what going back to what I was saying before, your ability to innovate uh, on that initial model is gonna be much bigger than your ability to innovate on a very complex uh, deep n neural net that you don't really understand what's going on in inside. So. I guess my the point that I'm trying to make when I talk about um, quote unquote no deep learning is that deep learning should be another of the tools we have in our toolkit. And there's a lot of other very interesting uh, machine learning tools and even research that is going on that it's uh, we should still pay attention to. Uh, there's a problem also in the research world right now with deep learning is that because it's so new and there's so many, so much low hanging fruit, uh, it feels like, you know, that it's the easiest way to get a paper accepted is to do an incremental improvement or not so incremental, but an improvement on some deep learning approach. And that's why we're seeing all the conferences now dominated with uh, deep learning things, right? Even when you go to a, uh, conference like KDD or uh, the ACM Recommender Systems Conference that I'm going to be attending in September, you start seeing like a bunch of deep learning papers because it's new. It's easy to be uh, innovating using deep learning, but we run the risk of like saying, oh yeah, this is the one thing that works for everything. And we're going to try to find all the nails that apply to this hammer and uh, we'll think that they're all, they all look the same. And, and I think that's, uh, there is a danger in that. So you've touched a little bit on some of the things you're doing at Quora. Maybe tell us a little bit about, um, you know, tell us yeah. a bit about your experiences there and, you know, what are some of the interesting problems that you face there? Yeah. 
Sure. Um, so I, I, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I love about Quora, and one of the reasons, as I said before, that um, we have a VP of engineering with uh, this kind of background in machine learning and algorithms is that um, everywhere I look uh, on our product and our, uh, the issues that we're dealing with, I see problems that are uh, solvable and should be solved through machine learning, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and now, if I, sorry for interrupting, but uh, it's likely that most of the people listening know what Quora is, but maybe you can start with uh, just an explanation of uh, the site and sure. Um, the mission. Sure, that's yeah, that's that's a very good point, uh, and it's a very good point because also even people that know us and use us frequently, they have a misconception about uh, what Quora is. So Quora is, on the surface, is a question and answer site and uh, application. Mm, But our mission goes beyond that. So the mission of Quora is to grow and share the world's knowledge. And we think that the question and answer paradigm is really well suited for actually growing and sharing knowledge. just to give a different example of the only other quote-unquote company that has a similar mission, which would be Wikipedia. Wikipedia uh, also believes in spreading or growing the knowledge, but they believe in the encyclopedic format, and that leads to a bunch of different product decisions, of course. So we feel like question answering and a broader notion of what knowledge is. So uh, Wikipedia is about factual knowledge. We think that, for example, an expert opinion is also knowledge and should be included in any knowledge base. So all of that defines our decisions. And uh, using question and answer for now is working really well, and we think it's the ideal vehicle, but we are not close to trying different things. And actually, we do have even different things as of today in, in our product that enable that knowledge growing and knowledge sharing. Um, so, so another way to look at and uh, to understand Quora is the different sort of like networks that overlay in the product. So we do have obviously a knowledge network and uh, even another one that is a topical network. So we have entities of knowledge that are connected to each other, topics that are related to each other. And then on top of that, we add the social aspect, right? So then we have people and we have people that are connected to other people and we have people that are connected to topics and to knowledge entities. And this sort of like different overlays of different graphs at different levels and the different connections between them is what makes the whole data problem very exciting because we have a lot of applications that cross the different uh, networks in different directions. And uh, we have, mm, for example, algorithms that are purely on the content space and they tell us how good is the quality of a given piece of content. We have other algorithms that tell us how likely is a person to answer a question on a given topic. Uh, we have different kinds of uh, machine learning algorithms that their purpose is sort of like trying to understand and predict different aspects of this dynamic system and uh, the relations between all these different entities. So again, examples of things that we do, we do a lot of recommendations. Uh, you have uh, initially in your homepage, you'll see a feed uh, of different stories that include questions and answers that we're optimizing for you to be interested on. And uh, that's 
kind of similar to the Facebook feed, but has other uh, implications and a different objective function. Um, so recommendations like that, uh, recommendations that you get through email, uh, we optimize the notifications that you get through the different devices also using machine learning. That's all on the personalization side of things. Then we have content uh, approaches to infer the quality of a content uh, to do things like ranking answers according to how good they are. Uh, we have things related to a lot of the text side of things, uh, automatic topic labeling, how to infer a topic out of a given uh, text, um, how to find similarities in questions and answers, how to find duplicates. Uh, and then also uh, we have the whole abuse uh, side of things, which also uses machine learning. Uh, we need to, one of the things that Core is known about for is, you know, keeping high quality content, and that's the quality piece, but also keeping a very healthy, positive community. Uh, and we do that with very aggressive sort of norms and also algorithms that detect any form of spam, harassment, uh, bad actors, and so on and so forth. And each one of them is a different machine learning algorithm. So it's really exciting in that sense because we have covering sort of like a huge space of applications and data types that go into these applications. Interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about the extent to which you use uh, hybrid machine learning plus human? Yeah, obviously there's a big component of the site that you could argue is hybrid as users are ranking uh, different answers, but are there ways that you're using uh, hybrid approaches behind the scenes? Yes, uh, we are. Uh, so, so one way to think about it is uh, initially all everything, all of this was manual, right? In the first initial beta version of Quora, there were no algorithms in place, and all of it need, needed to be manual. Um, so, we do have a team of moderators and people that look at content, and there's always a point where algorithms are not going to be sufficient and you need somebody to look at the nuances of like, is this answer uh, about this politician really violating our norms? Yes or no. And it's like really nuanced and we need to have a person look at it. So the way we think about it is uh, there's, uh, if you think about any content moderation issue, there's always going to be a high uh, portion of the stuff that you have on your side that is going to be good. And it's going to be good with no doubt. So you can have algorithms that say, hey, above of this threshold, I'm totally positive this is good stuff. We don't need to worry about it. There's always going to be a huge, well, not a huge, but some part of your uh, content that is going to be really bad. And there's no doubt about it. So there's another threshold that tells you below this threshold, I'm just going to remove this stuff because it's basically crap. And you don't want it. That's how you keep the uh, quality of your content in the site, right? Now there's this gray area in between those two thresholds, and that's the tricky part, right? So you have to do two things. One is there's, you know, you have to have people then look at this gray area and decide, yeah, this is not really that bad. It should, we should be okay uh, with it. And at the same time, you need to improve your algorithms to get those two thresholds as close to each other as possible. And that's very interesting, right? Because it represents sort of like a, a research challenge for us to improve our machine learning algorithms say, hey, we want the gray area of the things that are uncertain to over time become as small as possible. And we're doing that. And at the same time, 
the gray area is still there. Uh, and when when we have things in the gray area, we need to use some humans in the loop to understand what's going on. Uh huh. So if if Quora were to do a, a Quora prize analogous to the next Netflix prize, what would it be about? What are some of the biggest challenges that you you, you face? Um, well, there, there's uh, in each of those uh, dimensions that I mentioned before. There's uh, there's challenges that are still not resolved. But I guess uh, thinking of the Netflix prize and something that would be kind of similar, and I think it's very interesting, and uh, probably that's uh, an obvious direction we would go, is that for something like uh, knowledge, there's also the problem, which is similar to the Netflix prize, of how do you get the right piece of content to the right person? And content is expressed in two ways, right? One is a content that you can consume, so that's an answer that you can read and you can enjoy and you can learn from it. And the other one is a question that you can answer. So both of those things, how to route them to the right person and how to optimize algorithms for those two things are at the core of what we're doing and they're very important for us. So I think we could think of like, uh, again, drawing the analogy of the Netflix prize of like a question and answer recommendation uh, being like a very interesting topic uh, that mm, for us, it's like a, a super interesting challenge. Uh, it also connects like many different uh, dimensions on the different overlays that I was talking about, because it's not only about personalization, but you also have to care about content quality, right? Uh, and you have to care about those different aspects and how they uh, feed into mm, what, what the user's are going to be doing and reacting to short term, but more importantly, what they're going to be reacting to long term. Uh, I've talked about that in the past in some of my presentations, like this sort of like tension between short term metrics and long term metrics. And that's something that a lot of companies have done the wrong thing and they've gone downhill because of that. And it's really important to understand, uh, for example, in the context of content how to avoid clickbait, right? And if you're optimizing for some things, you're gonna get clicks, sure. But those clicks are gonna turn into people not visiting your site ever again after a mm -hmm. couple of weeks. Uh, so all those things sort of like uh, fit into this picture of sort of like content recommendation or knowledge recommendation. How, how do you address the short-term, long-term trade-off now, maybe even in the context of uh, a clickbait type of application? So so there's different things that go into it. Uh, I would say that that's, uh, that's one, one of the most interesting research areas that I don't think it's been really solved, even in uh, research literature, because there's it's very hard to get enough good quality data sets to even do something about it if you're if you're a research in academia. And in industry, uh, I mean, as far as I know from the people that I talk, there's obviously different things that we're all doing, but a holistic approach to it is it's hard. Um, the, the one important thing is you do need to make sure that you're running your A-B test with the right sort of metrics, right? Because at the end of the day, 
you can be optimizing whatever you want in the lab and say, oh, uh, it's a ranking problem. I'm going to be optimizing NDCG. But the reality of that metric that you're optimizing in the lab with your algorithm might not really correlate perfectly to what you want to get in the product in that long-term metric. So first, you need to make sure that you, whatever you tune in, your, in the lab, you run A-B tests long enough term with the right metric to understand like what is the met, uh, what what are, what are the, uh, the effects that whatever you're doing have on the users, and then you kind of wa- uh, work backwards from that, right? Once you have the right metric on your A/B test, you know, oh, if I do this, my users end up not coming back after two weeks. What did I do? Then you back, you, you kind of work backwards from that and try to understand like what are the metrics in the lab that you could have used to sort of like predict that kind of behavior and the kind of effect, right? So uh, building um, regression models from sort of like your uh, easy to compute uh, metrics, which they're all going to be related to some kind of error or some kind of uh, information retrieval, precision recall, whatever you will, into Mm -hmm. the real world of usage I think that's uh, that's very important. And then there's a there's a ton of other things that you can do once you understand those dynamics and trying to uh, uh, define your training set in a way that actually um, de- uh, defines the problem in the right way. Uh, and and sometimes uh, I've uh, I've talked about this also in the past. People have this mistake of I need to use all the data that. I have and I need to use the raw data that I have. Um, and sometimes that's not really the answer. You might need to use some data and not others because uh, some of the data that you might be feeding into the um, into your model might be teaching the model the wrong thing or you might need to weight your data in a way that some is more important than other because it leads to longer term effects that you're interested on while other might lead to a click but nothing else. So there's there's a lot of sort of like uh, different details going into the recipe, uh, but again, I, I don't think there is a very holistic approach to it, or not that I'm aware of. Okay, uh, one thing that that came to mind for me was, and this is maybe going back to our discussion around deep learning. Uh, there is some research happening uh, around RNNs, and you know when the the reinforcement or the score you know comes later, and how the RNN can optimize for um, you know, this delayed gratification, so to speak. And so, you know, maybe this is where, you know, if, if this gets yeah. sophisticated enough, this is where you get um, some benefit from the introducing the complexity of RNNs where an otherwise simple model might come into play. Yeah, uh, that's definitely true. Uh, so models uh, or approaches that have any sense of sequencing or time or evolution over time, do have some uh, some benefits uh, and 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 you can use them. It's not only about RNNs. Another thing that comes to mind it's uh, uh, some reinforcement learning approaches. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the typical what, one of the typical ways to deal with this is uh, to use and some form of multi arm bandit uh, approach uh, to deal with the exploration exploitation trade-off it's it's more of like yeah you know i know that you're clicking on this but let me try to explore more things let me try to come up over time uh have uh you know my model converge to something 
that is a global optimal rather than getting stuck on that local one where I am right now. So yes, um, you're right. I mean, and and some of the sequential RNNs with some form of uh, memory and and ability to sort of like uh, remember different stages and sort of like end up converging over time into a, a better optimal. Uh, they're super interesting. Yeah. Before we before we get too far, can you explain simply uh, multi-arm bandits? Yeah. Uh, so the idea uh, is pretty simple. I mean, multi-arm bandits comes from this notion of you have uh, the the typical image that people use is the uh, slot machines in a casino. Uh, you imagine that you go into a casino and you have ten slot machines in front of you, and you don't know which arm you should pull. That's where the multi-arm bandits come from. And uh, you start trying one and say, "Oh, this one is giving me some." interesting prices, but should I try another one? Because maybe the one that I have next to me is actually better than this one. And how to deal with this dilemma of out of multiple arms that you could be pulling, there are some that you have more information about and you know uh, with a degree of certainty how well they're doing. And there are others that you don't really know anything about them. Should you risk yourself and go into the ones you don't know anything about them? Or should you just stick to the one that kind of works, but Maybe it's not the optimal one. So I think that's the whole point of the multi-arm bandit um, uh, approaches. It's like they try to define a way in which you can have an optimal policy to deciding whether you should continue pulling from the same arm or you should go to a different one. And okay. there's uh, there's uh, a lot of literature uh, on on this, uh, uh, in, and you can read about it and. I usually uh, joke about it. There's a lot of literature uh, about multi-arm bandits, but there's only one that actually works in practice. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if I want to give that away. I mean, it's 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 pretty it's pretty uh, well known in uh, in industry that uh, Thompson sampling is the easiest and sort of like more practical approach to multi-arm bandits. So I uh -huh. think that I'm not giving too much away by saying that. <laughs> So what uh what what are you finding most exciting about machine learning right now? Obviously, there's a ton of things going on. There's uh, deep learning stuff. There's the work that's happening around bots. There's applying deep learning to NLP. Like you know, given everything that's going on, like what what's the most exciting and and do you get to apply that in your work? Um, and what's yeah. the most exciting thing that you're actually working on? Um, so I think the most exciting thing for me, it's almost a, a non-technical thing. It's more of a, this thing coming from society as a whole, that it's uh, accepted as a given that machine learning and AI is inevitably part of making a better future. Right. And I think, you know, there are still sort of people that were arguing about dangers and, and about, um, robots taking over and so on. But I think generally speaking, society is convinced and it's pretty uh, much, you know, all bought in, you know, self-driving cars. A couple of years ago, people thought uh, we were crazy about self-driving cars and now they're already being tested right. uh, with um, people riding in them. So 
so I think this sort of like change in society and in mindsets and people realizing that, oh, machine learning is not really evil. It can be, it's a tool, it can be used in my uh, benefit and it's something that I expect things to have. To have. So I, not very long ago, seeing something that was an algorithm or machine learning was like, whoa, what's going on? I'm losing control. This is not something I like. And now it's shifting to the opposite. Like you expect applications, you expect uh, gadgets to have intelligence and to have machine learning. Otherwise you're disappointed. Like, oh my gosh, I need to tell this phone everything I want. The phone should know what I want, right? So uh, I think that's that's a very, very interesting uh, shift. And, and it kind of uh, connects a lot with some of the things we're doing at Quora, right? At Quora, we are very user focused and we uh-huh. want to keep we want to keep this warm feeling of you're in the community, you're sharing knowledge, this is very important for you, it's very important for the people, but you're going to be surrounded by all these different algorithms that make your life much better, and they protect you from bad people, and they protect you from horrible content that you don't want to read, and they help you get your content to the right people that want to uh, read about it, and they're going to be helped by it. Uh, so this combination of sort of the warmth of community, social aspects, and knowledge, but also surrounded by all these uh, different algorithms in a seamless way. I think that's super exciting, and it's something that uh, you need to uh, strike the right balance. But uh, it's something that just a few years ago we wouldn't thought about because you know, again, algorithms uh, were this, this this cold, evil thing that you kind of like wanted to stay away from. Uh, so I think that's that's a very interesting trend and uh, something that I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're coming to the end of our time, but I've got a couple more quick questions for you. The first is, uh, you go to a lot of conferences. What are your favorite conferences in the space? Um, I wouldn't say I go to a lot of conferences. Unfortunately, uh, especially now, since my time uh, as a VP of engineering is pretty precious and I don't get that much uh, time. There are some conferences that I have ties for a very long time. And I keep going to them because I, I'm very interested in the content, but also I'm interested in the community. Right. One of them is uh, is a small conference, actually. The, it's the ACM Recommender Systems Conference. That's a conference that is purely focused on personalization and recommendations. And I helped start the whole thing. I was uh, the general chair for that in 2010 uh, back in Barcelona. And I kept, kind of keep in touch. It's an, one of the interesting things about this community, which uh, I think is a little bit similar to, for example, KDD, is that it's a very diverse kind of uh, audience and you don't get mm-hmm. the pure machine learning NIPS audience. Everyone focuses on the uh, algorithm and, uh, you know, squeezing uh, 1% more or less uh, RMSE or uh, MAE out of their algorithm. Mm-hmm. There's a combination of uh, algorithms, but also application and then user-oriented research, which uh, I think connects to the vision that I was saying, right? This connection between uh, user orientation and algorithms, uh, it's very uh, interesting. So yeah, uh, the ACM Recommender Systems Conference, which by the way is happening in Boston, if anyone is uh, listening uh, from Boston or wants to travel there, uh, this year is in the US and it's gonna be super interesting. Uh, And when is it? It's coming up, right? Yeah, it's in September 15th. So yeah, in a few weeks, uh, we're going to be there. 
Um, and I'm, for, just to give an example, I'm giving a tutorial uh, with together with Deepak Arrowald from LinkedIn on uh, all the latest research and um, all the evolution of recommendation systems in industry. And we're going to be giving a holistic perspective of uh, me coming from Netflix and now Quora and him having been at Yahoo and now leading machine learning at uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so it's going to be sort of like a, an overview of all these kinds of uh, machine learning techniques for recommendations. Uh, so that's that's an, an example of a small focus conference, but also with a very broad audience, which I kind of enjoy. Um, KDD, which uh, just happened to be in San Francisco recently. Uh, I like the community a lot, and uh, I think I, I can find a lot of uh, very interesting uh, a, a approaches and applications. Um, I usually, um, yeah, I, I'm very application driven in my uh, approach to machine learning. So okay. although I will, I will read all the papers or not, not all, sorry, <laughs> some papers from NIPS and ICML, I, I tend to uh, go to more sort of like application driven conferences. And, and there's also a lot of uh, small conferences that are organized now uh, that are kind of local and focused uh, on the industry side of machine learning. Uh, MLConf is one that comes to mind that I attend regularly because I find the audience to be very uh, interesting and very engaging. And uh, it's a lot of uh, practitioners from industry mixed together with uh, a bunch of researchers. And that intersection, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And then uh, one more question that you're in a particularly good place to answer for us, and that is, who are the people to follow, uh, the machine learning folks to follow on Quora? Oh, that's a, it's a great question, but we have a lot of them. So we've been doing actually a, a, a very strong push for this uh, product feature that we have, which is Sessions, which is uh, similar to an AMA. And we brought in, mm -hmm. uh, I would say, like all the top machine learning researchers uh, to do some uh, session in the past. Uh, we've had people like, uh, I mean, most of the deep learning folks like Jan Lekun and uh, Joshua Benjo. We've had Andrew Ng. We've had Peter Norbeck. Uh, we've had um, a lot of different researchers and uh, I would say uh, most of the authors of the famous uh, machine learning books like Kevin Murphy from Google and so on uh, or we, we we had Ian Goodfellow the main author of the deep learning book also recently so there's like uh, a good yeah I would say 50 people that you would follow we've also had uh, people that lead machine learning in different companies like uh, Amazon, we have uh, my friend Ralph Hurwitz from Amazon uh, or Joaquin from Facebook. Uh, so there's like a, a huge machine learning community in Quora that is very active and very uh, strong. So it's one of our strongest areas right now. So I would recommend uh, people who uh, are interested in, in machine learning. There's like a ton of knowledge there and growing. So, uh, yeah. Great. Great. 
Uh, well, Xavier, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I, I learned a ton, and I'm sure the folks that listen uh, will as well. Uh, anything you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I mean, thanks for having me, and uh, it was great to share a little bit of that knowledge uh, in this different format, uh, which uh, it's also it's a way of spreading knowledge, and I look forward to interacting with people, um, especially on Quora. I, I myself write a, a lot of uh, different answers on different topics, including machine learning. Oh, that's a good point. Before we go, where can folks find you? How, how can folks uh, engage with you? Uh, I, I'm pretty public on Twitter. As you mentioned, you, you had seen a bunch of my tweets. So I'm, uh, they can find me on Twitter on uh, Chamat, X-A-M-A-T, or on Quora, I'm also very active, uh, so you can follow me on Quora and uh, message me there. Um, I usually keep uh, a very active public uh, profile, so uh, it, it's not hard to find me. And I have a pretty weird name and last name, so it's like it's re- <laughs> it's hard to uh, to go into the wrong direction if you if you Google my name. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks so much, Xavier. Yeah, thank you, Sam. All right, everyone, that's it for today's interview. Before we go, a reminder that This Week in Machine Learning and AI and O'Reilly have partnered to offer one lucky listener a free pass to the inaugural O'Reilly AI Conference, which will be held at the end of September in New York City. You can enter via Twitter or the twimmelai.com website by doing one of the following three things. The preferred way of entering is via Twitter. Just follow at TwimmelAI, T-W-I-M-L-A-I, and retweet the contest tweet that I'll pin to the account and post in the show notes. Do those two things and you'll be entered. If you're not on Twitter, you can sign up for my newsletter at twimmelai.com newsletter and add a note, please enter me in the additional comments field. Finally, if you're not on Twitter and you aren't interested in the newsletter, no problem. Just go to the contact form on twimmelai.com and send me a message with that form using AI contest as the subject. The drawing will be open to entries through September 1st, and I'll announce the winner on the September 2nd show. Good luck and hope to see you in New York. Thanks again for listening.